City Group today, it was impressive. Well, they beat on the trading profits in the bond market. So they were able to offset, you know, potential portfolio stresses that, you know, they could have had if they went too long and and broke the rules of banking and borrowed long and lended short. They're supposed to do it the other way, right? Take a look at that. I think the big banks are in really good shape because they're all going to have similar experiences with more trading uh, in the bond market. I think most of them, from what I've seen, did not go very long on the duration for their bond portfolios. So I think the big banks are in really good shape. Hi again, everybody. Welcome back to Investing Experts podcast. Excited to bring back Kirk Spano on the show from Margin of Safety Investing. He was on a couple weeks ago talking energy and inflation and tech and banks. And today he is back bridging the gaps between different sectors and how investors should be and can be thinking about them. We get into different metrics to use for the different sectors that Kirk covers. We get into a discussion about the Fed and why he differs from most prognosticators. And we get into a deep dive about the recent financial earnings that we saw at the end of this past week, Citigroup and Wells Fargo and the different big banks and how to think about those results vis-a-vis regional banks and the financial sector in general. We get into another robust conversation around Bitcoin after seeing it break 30,000 this past week. Kirk sees it going up to 300,000. So what that may look like for investors, a deep dive into the marketplace. We get into some energy talk and how investors should be looking at names in that space. And for any stocks we cover, check out their tickers on Seeking Alpha. Just type in the ticker. You're going to see a lot of analysis and all our news coverage. And for premium subscribers, you have even more options to dig into when you type in a ticker on Seeking Alpha. There's many more ratings. Check out Margin of Safety Investing. It's an investing group. We have a number of other investors groups on Seeking Alpha covering almost every sector you can think of. Kirk mentions a couple that he likes specifically today, but you can explore our investing groups on Seeking Alpha. Just hit up the homepage and you can see on the left side, explore investing groups, and you'll see all the different investing groups we have on Seeking Alpha. I think Kirk does a great job of helping us as investors navigate these volatile waters. Hope you enjoy this conversation and have a great weekend. Kirk, welcome back to the show. Welcome back to Investing Experts. It's great to have you on. A lot of great discourse last time we talked uh, more than a couple weeks ago at this point. It's great to have you back on. Excited to what we get into today. And real happy to be back. So getting into it right away, something that the end of this week has brought has been financial earnings, talk of what the Fed may or may not do in a few weeks. How are you thinking about it? It's April 14th. How are you thinking about this past week and going into next week? Well, the dark period for the Fed starts next week, I believe. And I don't think that there's going to be much different expectations from what I I gave you last time. I think that we see a quarter point increase. I think that the jobs numbers yesterday uh, support that. I think the rhetoric out of the Fed this week supports that. I think more and more of the experts and people who really are Fed watchers have come around to to my way of thinking. I think the interest rates are going to be higher for longer. I don't see a single rate cut this year. I think the market, uh, especially the retail market, has that very wrong. Uh, We are in the midst of what I would consider the great normalization. 
and the story that I tell the investment group uh, subscribers over at Margin of Safety Investing is this. There was a lunch between Ben Bernanke and David Einhorn and a bunch of other investors and, and hedge fund guys. I think uh, Ackerman was there where Bernanke said, I don't expect interest rates to normalize in my lifetime. Well, I think he was probably right, except COVID hit. And we put in 10 or $11 trillion into the economy between monetary and fiscal stimulus, which was more than we needed. But again, I've argued that that was pulling forward the eventual baby boomer bailout that we probably were going to need, which I think we've mitigated at this point. So they've raised interest rates aggressively for about a year now. People are like, well, they have to go back lower. And I think eventually they do lower interest rates. And I think that because of the financing of the debt, you're going to have to see interest rates on the Fed side come down to around 3% because you need those to be net zero. They need to be real zero. So if inflation's 2 to 3%, then you can't have a Fed funds rate and longer term treasuries much above that. Otherwise, it gets very expensive for the government to finance the debt. So you need a real interest rate in that zero to one range. Otherwise, it just gets too expensive. So that will eventually happen. But in the next year, I don't think so. I think that all the indicators, especially employment, show us that a soft landing is not only possible, but I think it's probable. I think that if we get a, a recession, it's short and shallow. Events can change that. War, uh, as I, I tell the subscribers, you know, never know when an alien shows up. You know, they've talked about the mothership out there somewhere scouting the universe, you know, from the Pentagon. That's that's from the Pentagon. So, you know, something out of the ordinary, black swan, uh, some weird oil spike. I mean, it doesn't look like that's going to happen either. Can cause that Armageddon zombie scenario. But. I just, I just don't see, without a big event, I just don't see so many bad things happening. I think things are being handled well. I like what the Fed and the FDIC did with the banks. I like the implication for what they will do with the banks. Jamie Dimon just said, hey, if we have more banks go under or get into trouble, we have a way to deal with it. It's not going to get out of hand. And, you know, a lot of that comes back full circle to all this capital in the system. You know, I work with private equity firms, hedge funds, and family offices. Nobody has a shortage of cash. You know, there is cash out there, trillions of dollars, ready to go into the system and, and bail it out privately. Now, I don't know if that's good. If, if, if the richest people get all the bargains, you know, you can have that socioeconomic conversation. But it was not a shortage of capital, and the counterparty risk that we saw in 2007 and, and eight and nine, stuff that I warned about in 2005 and six, just doesn't appear to be there. So unless there's you know an escalation of tension on the geopolitical stage, man, I just don't see a lot of horrible scenarios. And again, I'm the guy they called Permabear. So I think the evidence suggests that things are going to be okay. The Fed has a ton of cover to keep those rates higher for longer, too, because we just don't have unemployment. And I don't see much changing that because we have so many baby boomers dribbling out of the workforce over time that we can't fill all those spots without immigration. 
And, you know, when are we really going to get immigration policy that makes sense? We've been waiting on that for 20 years, 30 years. It's been a long time. Yeah. Uh, policies that make sense. Sometimes we have to wait a long time. Um, so sticking for a second on the financial earnings that we've that are just trickling in really as the hours develop today. And last time you were on, you were talking about liking regional banks in this environment. And you mentioned a couple specifically. What would you say at this point? You know, I think the headlines point to some positivity out of banks like Citigroup and Wells Fargo and JP Morgan. And what would you how would you contextualize those earnings and what big banks are bringing to the marketplace um, and then maybe speak for a second about how this affects regional banks or how it doesn't affect regional banks. Well, if anybody was listening to the earnings today, I think they had to be pretty impressed. By the way, the earnings calendar at Seeking Alpha, it's spectacular. We work very hard on that. I mean, it really, you know, I've used 10 other ones and I'm looking at this and, and I'm not trying to plug this. I'm just looking at it and it's so easy. It has the companies with the earnings for the day. Last quarter EPS, whether it beat or miss, expectations, the estimates for now, it, it's really pretty well laid out. So I'm looking at that now, Citigroup today, it was impressive. They beat on the trading profits in the bond market. So they were able to offset, you know, potential portfolio stresses that, you know, they could have had if they went too long and, and broke the rules of banking and, you know, borrowed long and lended short. They're supposed to do it the other way, right? So if you take a look at that, I think the big banks are in really good shape because they're all going to have similar experiences with more trading uh, in the bond market. I think most of them, from what I've seen, uh, did not go very long on the duration for their bond portfolios. So I think the big banks are in really good shape. Now, I don't think they're going to uh, take over or absorb any of the regional banks to get in trouble because I don't think you want to see the bigger banks, the big banks get bigger. I think the more likely scenario is that they provide some of the funding to help these regional banks get over the hump like they did for First Republic, right? They got a $30 billion lifeline. I, I think the mergers and acquisitions are, are coming in the regional banks as several of the CEOs probably say, you know, we're in a position where we're vulnerable, uh, even though we like our bank and I like being the CEO and I like being the chairman, but it probably makes sense for us to merge some of these regional banks, create more national banks, and they'll find a way to get paid, right? So they'll have their change of control bonuses and whatnot. That's always a big deal, right? If the executives don't get paid, uh, then they tend not to do anything until they can get paid. That's just the nature of, of the corporate beast. I think the regional banks are going to see a lot of M&A, even among the good ones. I think first, uh, uh, what was it, first national and then fifth- uh, First Republic. Fifth third. Yeah, for fifth third. For, I mean, there's, I get the name. There's, a, I have a list of like 15 of them. And they all have first or bank or corp or whatever in their name. They should come up with clever names like Google or something. Google Bank. Oh, wait, Google Bank. Well, that would be interesting. Big tech has all this money sitting around. What could they get into that would be interesting? You know, the bank charter rules uh, require uh, bank holding companies to be formed. 
and there's all sorts of restrictions. It's one of the reasons Berkshire Hathaway hasn't done it. But I think there's big piles of money out there that where there's a will, there's a way. Where there's a politician who can be influenced, uh, I won't say bought, I'll just say influenced, um, you know, I think there's a way to get some of the giant capital that's out there involved in the banking system in a way that doesn't negatively impact their other business or or tie them together uh, officially. So some sort of bridge corporate mechanism. I mean, it's out there. It's just they have to write the rules to allow certain things and then regulate it, which is hard in a world with Elizabeth Warren, who I have great respect for, but she's just wrong about certain things. Um, I think the regional banks are in great shape uh, in the long run. I don't think that means that you can't see prices go down 10, 20, 30% more as we realize uh, what the dilution is going to look at in the, you know, say maybe the bottom quintile of that group, right? So you're going to have your four, five, six, seven, eight regional banks that really do come up on hard times, they're going to have to dilute uh, a massive amount, probably. I think First Republic needs 80 to 90% dilution. I don't see how they avoid it. If they do, then that's some miracle of capitalism and smart regulation and a Fed that takes care of them, I guess. But to me, First Republic needs 80 to 90% dilution, uh, which we talked about last time. But I think that's largely reflected in the share price already. So, you know, we'll see how that goes. We'll see if they find a way to get Uncle Warren into banking uh, or Apple or Google or Microsoft or Walmart. I mean, there's just hundreds of billions of dollars out there that could do it. They have to figure out a way to make it happen. Usually things that make sense, and this has always been my experience, usually things that make sense eventually happen. The problem is eventually, right? We just mentioned policy a second ago, Uh, you know, Good policy eventually happens, but man, eventually can be decades. Maybe it was my banking article. Uh, Dale Roberts, you know, he's a writer here at Seeking Alpha. He's been asking me some probing questions and he openly wondered, is there a, a, a worry for contagion? And I just said, no, I don't think that there's a real high probability of contagion. I think that the neural rabinis of the world are wrong. Uh, he's a great author and he hit a grand slam 15 years ago, but you know, that doesn't make him, you know, prescient on everything. And I don't think that contagion is a real big risk. I just, in, in a world where we will accept monetary policy the way that we accept it, everything is fixable. Everything can be stretched out over time. As long as we work towards smarter fiscal policy over time, it probably all works out. You know, one of the reasons I was negative about markets uh, going into 2018, which ended up being a down year, and into 2020, which I think was going to be a down year without COVID, uh, but, you know, we'll never know now, was because I just thought that the speculative mania was too much. And I thought there was too much speculation. And now I think that the speculation and the use of gamma squeezes, which, you know, that's a big conversation, but the way the options markets work and the way that uh, investors who use social media and chat rooms and Discord and Reddit, the way that they gang up on certain stocks, you know, that creates a lot of volatility. But now you have mixed in these zero dated options and, and you're seeing volatility moves that spike straight up for one day and then they come all the way back down to normal within a day or two right 
that might be the biggest story here going into earnings is where do we see the hyper reactions in markets from all sorts of retail traders running in one direction for a day or two and then running all the way back the next day or two. I mean, I think you're going to see some wicked spikes in certain stocks. I think it's going to happen mostly in the small stocks uh, because those some of those indexes that are getting traded. But I'll tell you, people are overlooking the option market because, you know, it's rocket science to a lot of people. And I get it. I mean, it took me years to learn it. But you're going to see some pretty sharp moves up and down, I think, through earnings and into the Fed meeting. And people have to not panic because you might see a 30% drop in a stock in under a week, and it might be all the way back within a month. So, you know, I just think that I want people to get ready emotionally for what this earnings season and the eventual realization by the markets that interest rates aren't coming down. Yeah. And you would be, I think, um, in disagreement with many prognosticators at this point about about that point. I'd be interested, maybe even if you could straddle the line between novice and the more experienced retail investor, if you could expand just a little bit on the role that the options markets play here and how, as investors, they can use it or how it affects the marketplace. I think for four out of five people, you, you shouldn't be a trader. I think that the competition to be a trader is immense. I'm good at it, and I still don't do much of it. You know, I have a, a, a swing trader uh, that works for me who, you know, is supernatural. You know, you, you think of the, the movie The Matrix where at the end of the first one, Neo starts picking the bullets out of the air because you can just see all the code. Yeah, there's people like that out there, and you don't want to compete with them. And you don't want to compete with the supercomputers and you don't want to compete with Citadel and everybody else who's got mountains of money and better technology and they can get their trade in a little quicker and a little smarter because they have more data than you and they really know where the price points are that are going to draw in value investors. Competing with the really good traders, which is, you know, maybe 1% or 2% of the people out there total that are in the markets is almost impossible. It's why 80% of traders report losses to the IRS year over year is unless you are a skilled, excellent trader, you are better off having a job and just tweaking your investments weekly based on what you want to buy and sell or add a little bit more of or trim a little bit of. You know, most folks should not have hundreds of trades per year. They should have you know, if you have a 30 stock portfolio and half a dozen ETFs, you know, if you turn that portfolio over once a year, that's a big deal. So, you know, I think that most people need to just understand what the competition is, and then they will probably govern themselves better. The option market relation to that comes in because you have the speed of things so amplified, right? We went from monthly options to weekly options to daily options and you know now we have these zero time to expiration options that can create super spikes in volatility and that's very scary for people who see oh my gosh why did that go up 30 percent or down 30 percent and 
it's just what I, I I say this in my chat room all the time. It's just traders being traders. If the traders give you, an, and this is how you beat them. As an investor, this is how you beat them. And we've been doing it for a long time and more lately is when they create those super spikes or super troughs, just have limit orders that you update week to week that are way, way far away from the current price. So if there's a stock out there that you think fair value is 25 and it's trading for 30, and you're like, well, if this thing dropped to 20, I'd be getting a 20% margin of safety against the fair value, right? So $20 a share versus my fair value of 25. And right now it's 20% overvalued. Maybe what I'm going to do is I'm going to just set my limit order at 15. See how close I can get on, you know, when I wake up in the morning and see if there's been a huge move. It, it happens. It, I, I, we've seen it happen lately. So just set your limit orders three or five or 10% lower than you think you should to get that 20, 30, 40, 50% margin of safety, which is what margin of safety is. If, you, if you've read any of the books out there or just listen to Buffett, if you can buy a dollar for 80 or 70 or 60 or 50 cents, it's a pretty good deal. You, you build in some fudgeability on your estimates and what you think fair value is. You put in your limit orders real low and you might get the traders to give you a gift when you wake up in the morning. And that's usually when it happens. What is it, 80% of the price movement in the market now happens overnight because of the way the Asian markets move and the way markets move around the world. So the big moves happen between, I think it's four in the morning on the East Coast and then the open of the market. And that has to do with closing out in Asia and Australia. It, it, it's kind of amazing that all these things are linked around the world. And if you just are super greedy when it comes to buying super cheap, let the rest of the stuff take care of itself. Say, I want to own Microsoft at 150. I, I don't even know what Microsoft is. I don't think that could ever happen. But, you know, I want to own Apple at a certain price. I, this one I know because I'm looking for it. Apple can easily go down to 120. Now, can it get down under 100 again? Maybe, right? If there's a panic. So I set my prices at, I'm going to buy a little bit at 120 and I have a backup the, the, the truck price at 85. Yeah, that's really what I have out there. You know, so I'd add a little bit more at 120. And if, if the traders decide they want to give me a present, well, there you go. I, I'm backing up the truck at 85. And I can look at it too. If the move reverses and I still want more, I'm allowed to buy as it goes up. That's allowed. That's called pyramiding. You just add the positions that are going up. What, what did Will Rogers say? I buy stocks that go up. <laughs> it, it's really not that hard of logic is if it's going up, you know, you can always trim it back if you get uncomfortable with the price. Yeah. Speaking of um, price volatility and thanks for that breakdown of things. And I, I will add that something that I've always liked as I've learned more in my investing journey, I've been at Seeking Alpha a long time, is really encouraging the investing side of the marketplace as opposed to trading and what deep insight you can gain if you choose that route um, and avail yourselves to real experts. And, and I think that's what we're trying to do here is lend the expertise and democratize it a little bit. Um, so I think that breakdown may may help many people or at least to, to continue to think about things um, in the most advantageous way possible. 
Um, one of the stocks that has come out in the fallout of the Silicon Valley bank implosion that a lot of investors were talking about um, is is Charles Schwab. And they announced earnings at the beginning of next week. We had Cashflow Hunter, a Seeking Alpha analyst, on a few weeks ago talking about Schwab and and why he likes them in, in light of everything that's happened. I'm curious. I, I don't mean to, to get set on one stock, but there's something about Schwab that I think is representative of the financial sector. And I'm curious just what your thoughts are on a company like that, given everything that's happening. So interestingly, I had assets with my investment advisory firm over at TD Ameritrade, which Schwab is in the process of taking over. So that deal was made two years ago, two and a half years ago. So I've paid a lot of attention to Schwab uh, because I'm going to have assets on their platform now shortly. And I've already moved my IRA over there. So I wanted to learn how they worked. Uh, The last experience I had with them was 2008 or 2009 when the firm I was with back then uh, was adding platforms. You know, we had been at Pershing. uh, So we added TD Ameritrade. Then we added Schwab. And then after I left, they eventually added Fidelity. So they had all the major platforms. Back then, Schwab was growing and they were very aggressive. And they've been very aggressive. This this TD Ameritrade takeover is a super aggressive move. And they're going to have to get some economies of scale from that, which I don't know that there's many to be had uh, because both operations are running pretty lean. I think Schwab has... A lot of their staff out of Chicago, TD Ameritrade, I think has a lot of staff down in what Phoenix area. I don't know that there's a lot that they can close down because if you bring in all these advisors and retail clients from the TD Ameritrade platform, you still need a lot of customer service. And while AI is going to help that and whatnot, that conversation is important for an investor to have uh, with themselves because what are their margins going to look like after this merger is complete? Now, the problem everybody's talking about now is how is their portfolio of their own assets going to operate and what are trading profits going to look like in the future? I'd say probably a lot like the past. We'll just keep going through cycles. And when Schwab gets beat up in share price because there's a a down cycle, it just means that there's an up cycle coming. And I think that's probably true for them. What I don't know is... Will Schwab get cheaper yet? Or are they down about 40% over the last uh, year or so? I haven't done a really thorough fair value evaluation of them. However, I think the transition to them absorbing TD, which isn't getting talked about, is a big deal. And I know this from the inside. I, I've, I've had my brokerages that I've been with. I used to be with an outfit uh, that I just had a platform that I used. It was called Brokers Express which owned Options Express. And I don't even know if TD Ameritrade bought them or Schwab bought them, but that's all going to end up in the same place now. So you have all these brokerages over the last decade that are basically either owned by Schwab now. I think Fidelity bought a couple that are not very aggressive there. And I think Interactive Brokers ate one. I think Pershing, uh, which is uh, New York Bank of Mellon, I believe, uh, the parent company, has, has eaten a few. So, you know, you've seen a lot of the little brokerages get consolidated. Oh, E-Trade, right? Uh, who bought that? Morgan Stanley. Bank of America bought somebody. You know, all the big banks have bought these brokerages all over the place. And, and the one truth here is that scale matters. Schwab will have it. Um, but integrations can be difficult. 
And I will say that the culture at Schwab and the culture at TD Ameritrade among the people is very different. So Schwab is a bureaucratic organization. They're more likely to tell you, we don't think so as their default answer. And at TD Ameritrade, their default answer is, let's figure it out. They're going to have to merge those two worlds. Uh, and I'll tell you, in the past, I did not like working with Schwab. I thought that they were just too hard to deal with. And I thought it was an arrogant organization. And I thought that they were predatory at not only the corporate level for taking over other businesses, which is fine if you don't you know, get over your skis. But I think that you also have the idea in the head of advisors, and I know this is true, um, there's a lot of advisors, most advisors, I would say, are afraid of Schwab poaching their business because they have their own wealth management platform. So this merger of Schwab and it's really a takeover, TD Ameritrade, I think is going to open the opportunity for other brokerages to add business. Because the minute that Schwab sends your client an email that says, hey, we have some wealth management services, you're like, okay, let's look around. Let's go look at interactive brokers or look at whoever. And I will say, I, I much prefer interactive brokers for me and my trading. Uh, it's just a fabulous platform. However, they're forward-looking, they're their, their retail facing website sucks, you know, and they've been making it better, but it's still hard for people to use because it's just overwhelming. And for whatever reason, they haven't just copied the front page from the other brokerages like Fidelity and Schwab and said, here, this is what the retail client looks at. It's nice and easy. There's not as many buttons, not as many tools versus what the trader or the money manager would have. Eventually they do it. And, and there's a half a dozen other brokers. I think E-Trade is a, is a great setup. Um, Merrill, Merrill is the one that Bank of America ended up getting out of the financial crisis. I'm not a big fan of that. So I don't know who the winners will be from this merger. Will it be Schwab in the long run? Sure, because they pick up all those assets. But if I'm an investor looking for a brokerage to invest in, I probably look for the companies that benefit from advisors leaving uh, Schwab. Because I think that that is inevitable. The people who were with TD Ameritrade, I don't know that they necessarily stay with Schwab. I am um, just because I want the platform to offer to my clients, you know, Schwab or interactive brokers. Fidelity, I guess I could add at some point. I, I really like Fidelity. I do use them on the consulting side. So when you look at the brokerage industry, I don't think that the cursory view I don't think that the top down haven't been inside view is going to be the most whole a helpful thing for investors. So I, I don't know if Schwab can go lower or not, um, but I don't think the upside is as great as what people who are bullish think. I, I want to get into Bitcoin talking about the development of money and consolidation of financial houses and brokerage firms and the way that the financial industry is developing. Part of me wants to ask how you think that's all going to play out, but I don't want to get too theoretical and I don't want to get too off course. So let's let's stick for a second with the, the Bitcoin conversation because it's something else that we saw this week. And you and I were talking about the desire to add more zeros to things and Last time you were on saying that you don't see Bitcoin, you know, going below 300,000 and this week it passed 30,000. So speaking of another zero, how, how are you thinking about Bitcoin? So a few weeks ago, Bitcoin was what, 27,000. And the backstory here is I first got involved with Bitcoin 
in, in a significant investing way in 2016, rode that first spike up, sold, uh, bought back down, rode that spike up, sold, and then I've been accumulating it um, again since last autumn when I wrote the article uh, for Seeking Alpha. And I think that the number one theme with Bitcoin, and I'm not going to argue all the theoretical stuff, look, Bitcoin exists because people are using it, period. It's the same reason that the dollar exists. People use it. You don't have to have a government behind a currency necessarily if all sorts of people with money decide to use it. So Bitcoin, above all other things, is an adoption story. And it is getting adopted by lots and lots of people, organizations, and nations. So that's what makes it important. Now, will it be what we use to buy our pizza, right? The famous story about the guy who spent 11 or 12 Bitcoins on pizza uh, back in whatever it was, 2010. Um, those were, you know, some Bitcoin not well spent. It better have been a really good pizza. Um, it's not going to replace the dollar. and it's. But what it is going to replace is the need to keep tweaking your foreign currency reserves. The, the use for Bitcoin is as a hedge against mainly the dollar getting too strong, uh, but it's also a hedge against the dollar getting too weak, which I think is the less likely scenario. I've been talking about a bullish dollar scenario for over a decade. It's proven to be true. Uh, I think it'll be true as the baby boomers retire and the millennials um, become the peak earners, which is happening right now. I think the petrodollar becomes not a thing in 10, in 10 years. Uh, it's just not important. And we've seen Saudi Arabia and China do more with uh, Russia. So what role does Bitcoin play in that? Well, if not all the countries in the world love America or want to operate on our terms, or if you're an emerging market that needs a hedge against the dollar getting too strong that it crushes your economy, or if you are family office wealthy, you know, if you're eight or nine or 10 figure wealthy, what can you hold that'll give you some freedom from the dollar becoming oppressive or the US government becoming oppressive? Bitcoin is one that war. It's not going to be Dogecoin. It's not going to be any of these other coins. Bitcoin is the thing. It is digital gold. That's what it is. It's going to keep getting adopted and it's going to keep going up. Is it going to go to one and a half million like Kathy Wood speculates? Maybe on a spike. But back in the napkin math is that very simple adoption rates show that it's going to go to probably six figures in the not too distant future, next two, three years. I think 300,000 is my fair value for it. Uh, once everybody has just enough to hedge against dollar displacements or disputes with uh, the U.S. government, you know, what's going on between China and the United States and Russia and the United States, OPEC in the middle uh, and the rest of the Middle East in the United States and the West in general. It's all the old arguments about hegemony and imperialism and nations that compete, the wealth of nations, you know, Adam Smith. So if you go and look at all this stuff, you go, okay, do we buy our pizza with Bitcoin? Does it replace the dollar? No. But is it a valuable hedge? In this system that we have, it's very valuable. We just charted Bitcoin this week to see, okay, what are the pullback levels? 
The first pullback level for Bitcoin is about 27,000. Uh, basically erasing this two-week pop that we had. I think that's probable, and that'll happen. You'll get a chance to buy Bitcoin at 27,000-ish. Will you get a chance to buy Bitcoin at 25,000, which is our next support level? Maybe, but those middle support levels are tricky. You know, you don't know how much money the retail investor has, which is driving some of the price appreciation. The initial supports were in the middle teens, which is I talked about a year ahead of time when it was trading for 50,000. I said it for sure goes to 30,000 and it probably goes under 20,000 for a hot minute. It actually stayed there for what, four months? And there were buyers. So there was relentless buying of Bitcoin in the, in the teens. Somebody had a bid there and it was all those actors that I just talked about. These rallies typically get met with your regular type of pullback. Uh, a regular type of pullback is from trough to peak. Right, so from the low point of the of the price uh, recently to the high point, and you usually see about a fifty percent retracement. So twenty seven thousand, twenty five thousand, and then twenty two thousand are the big support levels we see for Bitcoin. I think the only thing that drives it below twenty two thousand again uh, is a financial crisis, which we just talked about. I don't think is terribly likely unless there's a geopolitical event. And if you're holding cash. And you get a geopolitical event that makes everything cheap, invest, don't sell more. Same thing with Bitcoin. I've been telling people since COVID when it crashed, buy Bitcoin when it was under 10 grand. And they, they asked all the way up, should I buy it now? Should I buy it now? Yeah, you know, that that's the thing. People get FOMO rather than thinking in terms of value and where is the price support. I was a quant way before it was cool. I correctly got the credit collapse for the most part. I was selling in 2007. I didn't know enough back then on how to get rich on that, but I've done pretty well on some of the other uh, big corrections. You know, right before COVID, I told everybody sell almost everything. I ended up doing a lot of shorting and did well. In April of that year, I told everybody Tesla and all those stocks that became meme stocks. And, and come full circle, I think that if you can buy these dislocations, which the underlying structure of the market allows for, in which social media and the fact that we have twice as many traders shouldn't, but we do, just use these whipsaws, whether you want to get into Bitcoin because you don't own any. Um, I mean, I'd say don't buy it until you at least understand the basics and don't buy much, you know, single digit percentage of, of your portfolio for sure. But think of it like digital gold. Back in the day, people said buy, you know, put three to 5% of your portfolio in gold. Why? Same reason you would do Bitcoin. You know, if you want that hedge, I think Bitcoin is much more likely to give you a big price appreciation than gold. Not that I don't like gold. Like I said last time, buy some gold bars. If you can find old coins, buy old coins. If you like old jewelry, buy old jewelry. Because uh, gold is an element and it can't be replicated cheap. You know, it takes a nuclear reactor to build, to make gold. Bitcoin is digital gold. You can carry it around. You can transfer it somewhere else. And there is a market for it that already exists. And that market isn't going away. I, and I hate to be on the other side of Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger on stuff like this. But what they have ingrained in them is the Bretton Woods monetary system. Bitcoin is the hedge to that. And that is why it exists. It's not to replace the dollar. It's to be a hedge for people and countries that don't necessarily agree with the United States, which, you know, the dollar is so strong because nobody else can do what the dollar does. Nobody has our economy. There's no way to compete with the dollar. Bitcoin was the way to pool 
the economic resources and the overlapping interests of people who are afraid of the dollar in the United States. That is what it is. And it's going to keep going up. I don't think that there is any way to logically argue against that. The only thing that could stop it, it got simultaneously banned in all the Western countries. Even then, I don't think that's good for the dollar. I think that that would be something that hurt America if we did that, because then everybody would say, look at the tyrant. Yeah, I think that's a pretty sober articulation of of Bitcoin's position in the marketplace at this point. Um, and, and I would just like to point out also, we talked about this towards the end of our last conversation, but you have a great article about the practicalities around how to really own Bitcoin for investors wondering how, how to practically own it. I would check that out from uh, November of last year. Kirk has a great article on that. The question that I wanted to ask about Bitcoin, you mentioned what could take it down, possibly. Um, but what is, what are the catalysts that bring it up? Is it a continuous uh, series of catalysts? Is it a couple of big price explosions? How do you see it growing, uh, if we can get into the theoretical side of things a little bit? So it's two things, just like everything else. On the one end, you have the value buyers, right? People who want it and they look for a price. You know, they look for an opportunity to buy it. That's mainly what I do. On the other end, you have the traders who will chase it and FOMO it and create narratives to push it up. So you're going to get more pronounced in Bitcoin because it's still largely unknowable to people. Right? There's a lot of people who talk about Bitcoin as a Ponzi scheme and this, that, and the other thing. Look, if you can talk about Bitcoin as a Ponzi scheme, then you can talk about the dollar as a Ponzi scheme. So, you know, it's it's not like those arguments can't be made. You know, I, I trained in rhetoric way back in college, and I'll tell you what, I can argue for against the dollar. I can argue for against Bitcoin, and I'm just telling you there's a place for both. Just like small cap stocks get beat to oblivion by investors and traders, mainly traders, ganging up on them until the real investors step in and say, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll take that off your hands. The same thing just happened with Bitcoin. Everybody beat it up. The investors, the people who want to own it long term, stepped in and said, 15,000, we'll, we'll take that off your hands. Now it's 30,000, four months later, five months later, whatever it is. You know, you're getting this FOMO rally. I mean, you're not supposed to have price movements of 100% every year, but it happens, right? So, you know, at the one end, the end where I am, the one where I look for, I look for big institutional interest or big money interest, right? Grandpa said, follow the big money. And I look for where the big money comes in because I know that's a pretty safe place to invest. I know that once the big money starts coming in, not much downside left. That is where... 80 to 90% of investors are scared as hell and selling it for cheap, right? Because they get emotional and I'm buying it from them. I'm just trying to do what Buffett said you should try to do, which is buy when fear is high. You know, Sir John Templeton and some other people have said buy when there's blood in the streets. That's all I'm trying to do. Now, if I want to try to be a FOMO trader because I'm super smart and I can compete with Citadel and I can compete with all the superstar traders who used to work on Wall Street and now manage their millions sitting in their bedroom, you know, they usually have pretty big home offices. I've seen some of them. Matt Tuttle. I know Matt Tuttle, who with the anti-ARC fund. I interviewed him, I think for Seeking Alpha. <laughs> you should have seen the room that he was working from. I was like, man, I want to build one of those onto my house. That's what you're competing with. 
You're competing with these people who have data and insights and experience and technology. They can, they're, they're just going to beat you 80% of the times, you know, maybe 70% of the time. It's just like poker. If I push aces in over and over again, I'm going to win 80% of the time. It's the same way trading is, and the numbers prove it. I would encourage people to look for value, whether that value is in the value of the asset that you're looking at, or the value of uh, the current earnings and the outlook, or the potential growth, or the transition small companies go through as they move out of the CapEx phase and into the revenue and earnings phase, look for the value and have a, an outlook that is three to five years because that's enough time for things to develop. And it's not so far away that you can't see it. Three to five year window, which is what value line is always used and proven that it works. Jim Rogers, the famous uh, commodity investor says two to four years. Fine. I had a uh, CIO of uh, what is now a $10 billion investment firm. It's the one that I used to work at. Uh, we started it with a couple hundred million dollars and now it's 10 billion. He goes, Kirk, I read your stuff. And then I, I put it down and I come back in a year. <laughs> I was like, okay. He goes, why? Because you're always early. When he told me that over a decade ago, I decided to get a little bit better at the trading and hire people who do the trading. So things that I'm looking at now, I might not buy for a year, you know, because we've gotten better at that. The outlooks, the control of emotions, the way that prices move on small cap stocks, large cap stocks, Bitcoin, whatever. It's all about the same. You have big money that creates the floor and you have speculation that creates the ceiling and somewhere in the middle is fair value. And you work from that. So speaking to how you look at the marketplace, something that I wanted to ask, and we touched on the different sectors um, that you cover in, in the last conversation and the interconnectedness of, of those sectors. But I'm also curious from an investing standpoint, are there different metrics that you use and different ways of thinking about each sector as you're looking at stocks in those sectors? So I think let's talk about two different places. Uh, let's actually talk about three. Let's talk about banking. Let's talk about real estate. And let's talk about everything else, because that's really the three thing, ways that I look at it. Let's start with everything else. Very Peter Lynch on that. Price to earnings to growth ratio, right? If you can get a price to earnings to growth ratio around one, right, where the growth and the PE are about the same, so that ends up being one. So if, if the PE is 25, that means that you should have a 25% growth rate. That's what you look for on, on all stocks, is you're looking for a peg close to one, Greenblatt stuff, right, the little book that beats the market. That's all good. The magic formula. That's what he has. The magic formula. Uh, shareholder yield, Meb Faber. I, I interviewed him for, for Seeking Alpha. You know, so between peg, the magic formula, which is earnings yield, and then shareholder yield, which is the combination of buybacks and dividends, uh, less whether debt is going up or down. Uh, if debt's going up, then shareholder yield is less valuable because they're borrowing money to buy back shares. Or, or pay dividends. And that's not usually a good long-term recipe. But if debt is staying the same or coming down over time, then dividends plus share buybacks is a great way. You know, you know, to, to take Munger's side on this, we love companies that are cannibalizing their own shares, right? So all the talk about buybacks are bad. I agree with Buffett on this one too. It's, it's mostly bullshit. I use my farmer's words. I'm sorry about that. Buybacks are good for the investor. And there's nothing wrong with them in the economy. The money just gets recycled in other stuff. So you can't tell company A, hey, don't buy back your shares, go invest in something. Well, they're like, yeah, but we're good at this. 
We're, we know what we're doing. Don't tell us to go do something else. We'll just give the money back to the investors and they can pick and let the capital market allocate. You know, that's the thing about capitalism. It is really good at allocating way better than governments. And, that, and that's why we should always understand that capitalism has proven itself because of the way money moves, which is based on our psychology, which is based on what we all want in the world, which is to be happy and safe and have life be easier. Let's face it. I mean, think about how easy life has really gotten in the last 20 years since we got iPhones. So, you know, I mean, these things can launch, literally launch a rocket ship. You know, think about that. That's, that's what I look for on everything else with real estate. Um, AFFO, right? Everybody knows about FFO, but adjusted FFO, which is net of all those expenses that they have coming up, or that they're that they're working on or or paying uh, the capex is important, and there's there's a whole list of things. That, uh, somebody wrote a good article about AFFO on Seeking Alpha with High Yield Landlord. That's, that's one of the only services I've ever belonged to, and and I know that there's four or five other um, Brad Thomas, uh, the Colorado wealth management guy. There's a lot of REIT services. The reason I don't subscribe to REIT services is because there's only a dozen ideas I need. And I don't, I just don't need those services. So I have my own REIT basket and I pick my companies based on AFFO. I look at these companies based on, okay, what really is the story? And I'm famous for not liking Simon Property Group um, or Infamous or whatever. And people are like, well, but they're so smart. I'm like, well, they just handed back the keys on a mall in my neighborhood. That's a really good neighborhood because they didn't want to invest $100 million to upgrade it. And that's actually the plan that got put in place by the new owners a couple of years later. I think the Simon Property Group, if you just look at the interest rate cycle, has basically moved lockstep with interest rates in the economy. And that's special about Simon Property Group. Make a ton more money with smaller REITs, which is probably a better place for people to look at. Uh, because the AFFO is much easier to synthesize. It's much easier to look at a smaller company and say, okay, what is really going on there than some big sprawling thing. If you can figure out, okay, FFO is this, this is the reported number. What are the adjustments that are gonna to come to that? What is the CapEx this company really, really needs? And that's why a lot of the commercial REITs are in big trouble is because the conversion of a lot of these REITs, and I'm going to San Francisco and I'm gonna see the Salesforce tower that's getting emptied. A lot of these REITs own buildings, not only with loans that have to reset this year and next year, because that's a big wall of loans from 2018 to 19 coming up, but they have to redevelop a lot of these buildings and it's going to cost a lot of money. So not only do they have a tough loan to refinance, but they have huge CapEx that they have to put out over the next several years. And that's why a lot of buildings are going to get handed back to the banks. So at the REIT level, their FFO goes down because they're trying to avoid the A, the adjustment, and they just give the keys back. Okay, so now the banks, the banks own these buildings now. And it's gonna be five, 10, maybe 20% of these loans go bad and the, and the keys get handed back. Uh, nobody really knows yet. Is it gonna be 5%? I think that's the low estimate that I've seen. 6% uh, is pretty consensus. I think people I respect are saying 10 to 15%. I think that's probably what I agree with looking at it for, as a private equity investor with some of my partners. And like I said, if the aliens land or geopolitical things go bad, it could be higher. Um, but I think 10 to 15% of the commercial loans out there are going to be keys getting handed back to the banks. So the banks are going to have these properties. 
And the regional banks have really extended themselves on commercial real estate over the last five years. That's really where a big hunk of it has gone. And a lot of these banks have loans, and it hasn't happened yet, just a little bit. But over the next two years, there's going to be certain banks in certain geographies, and that's what you got to look at, that are going to have a problem. And those are going to be the banks in KRE that have to get, you know, that go to zero and pull that ETF's price down um, or get highly diluted. You know, at the bank level, you have to understand their portfolios if you really, truly want to understand it. And if you can't do these things, then just wait for the ETF to bottom out because it'll probably have a really good run after it bottoms out. We think the bottom in KRE is the middle 30s, um, but it could be a little lower, a little higher. You know, we'll know when we know. If the retail investors decide to short KRE, you know, if they get to that level of sophistication and it gains their interest and they decide to beat it up, you know, maybe it goes down to 30, who knows? Um, but mid 30s is what it looks like. I think you get a lot of big investors in there. I think that's where if we get the sniff of a banking crisis, the politicians start rewriting the rules so that that big money can come in. I really think that's likely. I, I really think that there's a moment where the banks are just beat up in the next year or two that there's panic, there's emotions, there's calls for action. And you know, politicians never let a good crisis go unused. So I think bringing the big money from tech and Walmart and Berkshire and the, some of the giant private equity firms, I think they're going to create a structure that allows them to own shares and have some sort of limited control via directors uh, on the boards of bank holding companies. So there's going to be a mechanism that allows these companies to invest in bank holding companies without completely tying their other firm into the bank holding company. So they'll be able to have 80, 90% ownership without having those liabilities transfer over to say Berkshire Hathaway or Walmart or Google or Apple or whatever. So with banks, the short answer is you better know what's on their balance sheet. Is it loans? Is it government debt? Did they borrow too long? You know, what did they do? So just understand the basic rules of banking. And I think the easiest way to look at banks is based on their geography. What do you know about Texas banks? A lot of oil. What do you know about California banks? A lot of tech, right? You, you just go area to area. What do you know about Midwestern banks? A lot of industry. East Coast banks, what do you get? old money. If you're investing in Citigroup, take a look at their history. Where did that company come from? An insurance company, bankrupt can manufacturer in a bank. What do you mean a, a bankrupt can manufacturer? Yeah. I mean, the guts of American can company is inside of the DNA of Citigroup. And it's because the executives of American can company figured out oh, manufacturing is going to move overseas. Let's sell this thing and take the financial assets and pile it in over here. And then you got all those mergers and Citigroup has effectively been bankrupt twice and got bailed out. You know, that's why too big to fail is, is a safe place to be in the very long run. You know, you can have a bad year or two, uh, but the Fed's coming to the rescue. It's interesting how you just describe Citigroup as kind of how you're thinking about the evolution of these sectors and industries and companies as they move from industry to industry and, and take on different businesses as it makes sense for them. I assume you are bearish on, on Citigroup. Um, no, the big banks, I'm just ignore. 
I just ignore them. I, I, I think that they're important to see how they're operating because it tells you about the economy, where we are in the cycle. Uh, but Jamie Diamond, um, you know, said it today. He said, look, we're not really tightening light, uh, lending standards across the board. You know, we got a couple spots that we're tightening up on. But if they're extending credit, that's good. And I'll tell you, my credit lines doubled, maybe close to tripled in the last year and a half. Um, you know, and I'm trying to do things right, but, you know, I don't ask for these credit increases. They just send me offers. Hey, you're pre-approved for this. Hey, uh, can we just increase your, you know, I get, get the email that says, here, we just increased your, your credit limit by double. Whatever, that's fine. So I don't think that we are at a point where you're going to see credit contract on a linear basis, you know, and I don't think you're going to have a fall off the cliff waterfall sort of thing either. I think they're just going to pick their spots. I think the regional banks probably hand out fewer credit cards, but that's not really their business. You know, who are all the big credit card companies? They're giant banks, you know, and then you got a few specialty companies, but it's, you know, it's JP Morgan, it's Bank of America, it's Citigroup. Those are good businesses to be in. Are they going to have to write off some loans? Yeah, but they have that provision for and since employment is high and they know employment is high and they know that it's not going to go down much, right? Because they, they, they own the Fed. And if they say to the Fed, hey, too many bankruptcies, the Fed's going to say, oh, well, I'll stop tightening then. You know, that's who, they, that's who, the, that's who Jerome Powell listens to. So, you know, I, I don't think that the big banks are bad places to invest. I don't think they're great places to invest. If you can buy them on the dip and the dividend's big enough to buy to buy the dividend because that's just what you want at your stage of life, then fine. Are they cheap enough right now? Not to me, but I don't think that they're, you know, I don't I don't think they're going to oblivion either. I just think that if you get one of those spots and you're the person who says, I'd like a big bank in my portfolio uh, because it's got a six percent dividend. If I don't I don't even know if anybody's close to six percent right now. Um, then maybe then maybe it makes some sense because it'll track the S&P 500 more or less. Fine. And if you want to track the S&P 500 through more income and less appreciation because you like the, the mailbox money, fine. By the way, I'll teach you how to write a covered call here and there. You can get more mailbox money. So as we wind down and we're looking ahead to next week, anything that you would share with investors specifically for this week or that you would point to investors to be thinking about right now? Well, we haven't talked about energy yet. And I will say that I think that there's a pretty good trade going on right now. You know, that little pullback we had was a refresher, I think. But I think that there's a handful a very small handful of fossil fuel stocks that are, that are good investments. Um, and I think that all of them have a common thread is that they have a tie-in to the energy transition. So with Occidental, it's carbon di dioxide uh, and carbon capture. With Kinder Morgan, same thing, carbon dioxide, uh, transportation, they're the biggest uh, transporter of carbon dioxide. And gas pipes, unlike oil pipes, gas pipes can be, can be converted into hydrogen. That is something that I think is coming. I mean, it's about a decade away. Uh, but when you talk about pipelines, everything's about a pipe uh, about a decade away. So, you know, I think the Kinder Morgan is real nice. I don't think a lot of the frackers are exciting. Uh, but 
the companies that are almost exclusively in the Permian, and this is why uh, that big Permian deal with the former Encana, you know, now Oventive just got done, and why Exxon is talking about or rumored to be talking about making a bid for Pioneer. Companies that are exclusively or almost exclusively in the Permian are in good shape. Infrastructure, best rock, right? That's something that if you don't know that phrase, if you don't know what rock is, uh, you know, you want the best rock, you want the best drilling places. Um, you know, you can look in the Permian for that. So Occidental and Permian Resources are the two that I'm in. Um, I think carbon capture and renewable natural gas and sustainable jet fuel or aviation fuel are big deals. I'm invested in Metis. Uh, that, I wrote an article about that in January. It's down 50% since then. You're out of your mind if you look at the price and say, I hate it, rather than looking at what that company is doing, who's behind it, and what the money situation really is. Um, because I still think that stock's going to go to 50. And, you know. Why do you think it's gone down so much? You got short trade. It's got a huge short interest. It's just getting attacked. It's no big deal. You know, when Jeremy Grantham is buying a stock that I like, I'm pretty good with it. You know, GMO is in there and you got some big investors in there and, you know, they're getting up to their threshold limits for ownership. So, you know, you're going to get two or three or four more institutional investors in there and the shorts are going to get squeezed into oblivion. That'll be a chance to right size your position because I probably own too much in the long run. Um, but I do think that that's a three to $5 billion company at some point. Uh, could it be more? Maybe. I know that the CEO wants that, but I don't know what the path is to that. I think at three to five billion, they get bought out by Chevron probably is who they're closest to, but could be Exxon, could be BP. BP just bought um, uh, Travel America. And I think that um, having a renewable natural gas producer uh, would be attractive to them. So, you know, you take a look at the companies that I'm in, and there's a half a dozen energy companies. I think that those are good if you want some of the old and the new. And then the other thing with energy is you've just got to own clean energy. You know, and I think the two ETFs that I'm going to use uh, for investing are QCLN, which is the first trust clean energy. It's got a very long name. Um, and then you've got uh, PBW which is more, uh, that's, that's not market cap weighted, that's level. And it's very skewed towards small and mid caps globally. So with PBW and QClean, and I'm gonna write an article about using these together and I've mentioned them before. Um, you've gotta figure out a way to scale into those because the biggest industrial transition in history bigger than all the other ones. And it seems like each one gets bigger, but I don't know if it'll be the case after this. I guess maybe space travel, but the industrial revolution that we have now in technology and energy, fourth industrial revolution impacts energy. The shift to clean energy that's going on over the next 20 to 30 years is so big. It impacts so many things. You've got to be involved with it at the energy level. And I'm not a huge Kathy Wood fan because I think she's a bad trader. But her big picture thinking is about right, uh, with the exception of the Arthur Laffer stuff. The world is changing, and industries that benefit from cheaper energy 
or AI are going to do the best because they can lower their cost the most. And if they're stacking up recurring revenues, like managing energy or software or any other type of service where there's just a contract that we're just going to keep paying you money for this service, like a subscription investment letter, that is going to do well in the future. Subscription revenue businesses always do well if they can get critical mass. So you have to find the ones that are getting critical mass and invest in them. I, I think that that's pretty amazing. I mentioned space travel. I'll just put this in there to close up. Um, I think that the space industry has the potential of being the next giant thing after the energy transition or being partially simultaneous. There is a basket of satellite stocks and other space technology stocks that we've been investing in just a little bit, but some of them are down 70, 80, 90%. Some of them were SPACs, so they have that built-in heat. And other ones are just small caps that are easily attacked. Some of those stocks aren't going to be 10 baggers. Some of those stocks aren't going to be 20 baggers. Some of those stocks are going to go up 50 or 100-fold. And I don't know which ones, so I just, I just spread my bets a little bit into the basket because space is going to be a massive industry over the rest of this century. Those are the types of investments that may not help you much in the next few years, but if you're thinking about 10 years out, if you're thinking about what I'm going to leave my kids, imagine the people, and, and, and I'm talking directly to these people, actually, folks who inherited Exxon stock 30, 40 years ago, pretty happy. Even though the stock hasn't gone up a lot uh, on aggregate, it's paid out a ton of income. Think about leaving your kid, if they keep step up in basis on the tax code, especially. Think about leaving your kids or grandkids a stock that has become the next Google or Amazon or Exxon because you bought it today. You should have a sleeve in your portfolio that invests in stuff like that, whether it's 5% of your money or 10% of your money or 30% of your money like me. You need to think about that because sprinkling those in, uh, in those big, huge, secular themes, clean energy, fourth industrial revolution, and eventually space. I mean, that's, that's generational wealth. I think that anybody who's investing, right, you start with, can I retire? How do I invest so I can retire? And then the next thought you have is, what am I going to do for my family? or the charity I love, or my university, or the grade school I went to, whatever, whoever you want to leave money to. I'm at that point in my life now, so I talk more about it, uh, because I do think that it is a natural transition, and transitions usually scare people, but this is one that can be fun. Talking a lot about transitions today, and it's a, a lot of food for thought. Curious, we saw Virgin Orbit go bankrupt this past week. Was that one of the stocks that you had in your uh, space portfolio? No, no, we own... Uh, Spire Global, which I first mentioned when it was seven, it's a buck. <laughs> so, you know, got that. Uh, we have an average cost basis of two. Um, we own Planet Labs, which is the safest one in that group. Uh, we own Black Sky, which is embedded with Palantir. We own Satellogic, which might have the best technology. Um, we own Rocket Labs, which also can launch rockets, and they have some neat stuff coming. And there's a few others that are on our radar. We just talked about Tesla yesterday. Um, I don't own it yet, uh, but I have owned it twice before. I probably should have just held it the whole time. You know, it's another argument for trading less and just buying and holding. Because if you invest in Tesla, you're going to get a shot at SpaceX someday. And if you can get it at a cheap enough valuation, which means you have to buy Tesla cheap, uh, because I don't think SpaceX is going to come out cheap. It's going to be an S&P 500 by the second year. But it'll come out S&P 500 size, and then once it posts a profit, it'll be 
in the SP 500. I think that these former SPACs and some of the other uh, space players will get bought out. So that's bad. I don't want them to get bought out. I want them to go up 20 fold and bought out or merge. But yeah, there's a good basket out there. So we just buy the basket, put a half a percent of our money in each one or maybe 1%. And, uh, and we go from there and we scale in slowly at very wide price points. So we first nibbled on Spire Global, and I'm addressing this because I wrote it in an article and I got six trolls out there who keep reminding me, oh, you first mentioned it at seven. Yeah, but we sold cash secure puts. So we got more at five. And we when we bought some at two and we bought some at one, you know, we have an average cost basis around two. I can live with that, you know, because if that stock, which is stacking up revenues, actually becomes the navigation company for a lot of the shipping industry, it's recurring revenue. It's forever money. And once they're through the CapEx phase, which they'll be done with in the next couple of years, now they have super low expenses and recurring revenues. Do the math. You know, you come out with a number and that number is really big. Yeah. Another great conversation, Kirk. I uh, I appreciate all the insight and, and knowledge and, and context that you've shared with us. I think we've also picked up that trolls are going to troll and traders are going to trade. And that's also something we need to keep in mind as investors. Um, really appreciate an, another week with you, Kirk. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. Talk to you soon. Just a reminder, anything you hear on this podcast should not be considered investment advice. At times, myself or the guest, my own positions in the securities mentioned. But this is for entertainment purposes only, and you should seek advice from a licensed professional before investing. If you enjoyed the episode, leave a rating or review on your favorite podcasting app, and we'll see you soon with a new episode.